Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, Genesis 45, uh, Genesis chapter 45 for our time of study in God's Word this morning. We're doing a a series through the book of uh, Genesis, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Genesis 45. We'll be looking at the entirety of the chapter uh, this morning, verses 1 through 28. And if you want to give a title uh, to the message this morning, it would be The Great Revelation. The Great Revelation. Last Sunday morning, um, in this room, right after uh, the church service was concluded, uh, there was a woman who came up to where my wife was sitting on the front row uh, and sat down next to my wife. And she didn't say a word to my wife at all. She just stared at Donna and smiled expectantly like she knew Donna and like Donna was supposed to know her. Well, Donna looked at her and said, do I know you? And the woman said, yes, from a long time ago. Donna felt the stirrings of recognition and then blurted out, Amy? And she was right. The woman's name was Amy Alvord, the wife of Bruce Alvord. Bruce was a classmate of mine at the Master's Seminary back in the early 90s. Bruce and Amy have been serving as missionaries in Ukraine for uh, over 25 uh, years, uh, and we had literally not seen them in 28 years' time. And they were here in the service last Sunday with their daughter, who will be a CBU student uh, this fall. From a distance, I had seen Bruce and, and Amy, Uh, during the service, and I saw them talking with Donna after the service, but I did not recognize them. But when my wife brought me over to them after the service, Bruce came toward me to shake my hand, and he said, do you remember me? And as soon as I saw his smile, I knew exactly who he was. And we were delighted to see them after 28 years and took them to lunch after the service and did a whole lot of catching up and got to know their daughter uh, as well. I'm sure something similar has happened to you guys at one point or another. Unexpected reunions are always uh, wonderful or usually wonderful. (laughs) And we will witness uh, in our passage today a most expected, unexpected reunion Uh, Joseph's brothers have actually been engaging with Joseph at length, and they've even had lunch with him, yet they did not know that the man that they were engaging with was Joseph, whom they had not seen in 22 years since they sold him as a slave to some traders who were traveling down to Egypt. They only knew the man that they were interacting with as the Lord of the land of Egypt. That's all. They did not know that he was their long lost brother who had been rejected by them over two decades prior. Joseph has been disguising himself in various ways throughout their interactions to keep his brothers from recognizing him and no doubt his Egyptian clothing and his royal headdress uh, and speaking through an interpreter uh, helped with the disguising of his identity. But in Genesis chapter 45, in the chapter we're going to be looking at today, Joseph is going to speak to his brothers without an interpreter, and he's going to say to them, I am Joseph. And what follows is truly one of the most astounding reunions recorded in Scripture. In fact, the commentator Henry Morris says that it is the most dramatic reunion in all literature and says that this was the event which established the miracle nation of the children of Israel. 
as I have preached through the book of Genesis up to this point and then studied chapter 45, I almost get the sense that everything in Genesis is a prelude to this. That this was on the author's mind, the story he wanted to tell, and yet he had to set the stage for this moment that served as the foundation for the miracle nation of the children of Israel. Well, a little bit of review would help us to appreciate what we see uh, in this chapter. We learned last Sunday how the Lord of the land of Egypt, who is Joseph, dined with the sons of Jacob. Uh, And then the next day he sent them off to return to Canaan with sacks full of grain. As the sons of Jacob departed for Canaan, their hearts had to be soaring with gratitude over how God had prospered them on this visit to Egypt. Simeon, their brother, who had been imprisoned by this Lord of the land, had been returned to them on this visit. And rather than doing any harm to Benjamin, this Lord of Egypt was good to Benjamin and even honored him with extra portions of food from his table when they dined together. And so they're heading back to Egypt with thankful, grateful hearts, savoring all the good that happened in this visit to Egypt. But no sooner, we saw last Sunday, were they out of the city on their way back to Canaan that they were stopped by a servant of this Lord of Egypt who accused them of stealing a very special silver cup that belonged to his master. Well, Jacob's sons insisted that they did not steal this uh, cup or anything from this Lord of Egypt. They allowed themselves to be searched. And to their great dismay, the silver cup was found in the mouth of Benjamin's sack of grain. And at this discovery, the brothers literally tore their clothes and loaded up their donkeys and allowed themselves to be led back to the city to face the Lord of the land to whom the cup belonged. When they reach the Lord's house, they come under withering criticism from him for stealing his special silver cup. And these sons of Jacob, upon hearing the accusation, amazingly, they don't even try to defend themselves. Judah speaks for all of them and says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants, partly alluding to their sin from 22 years prior when they sold Joseph into slavery. Judah offers for all of them to become slaves together with Benjamin as payment for the crime that has been discovered, knowing that it's what they deserve anyway for what they did to Joseph 22 years prior. But the Lord of the land refuses. And he says to Judah, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. At this point, Judah panics and he speaks up once again and delivers what one writer describes as the longest and most impassioned speech in Genesis He tells this Lord of Egypt how much Benjamin means to his father. He tells him how it would kill his father for Benjamin not to return home with them to the land of Canaan. And then Judah makes an incredible offer to this Lord of Egypt, saying in verse 33 of the last chapter, Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. So he's offering himself as a slave in the place of Benjamin so that Benjamin can go back to Canaan with his brothers. Verse 34, Judah says, For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Beautiful words. And at this point, Judah and his brothers have no idea 
as to how things are going to go from here. As far as they know, all of them may be taken as slaves into Egypt. All of them may be killed because Judah had presumed to challenge this Lord of Egypt the way he just now did. Best case scenario is that this Lord of the land will take Judah as his slave and let Benjamin return to Canaan with his brothers. Those are the only possible outcomes at this point, they think. The last thing these brothers expect is the thing that will actually happen in this chapter. As for Joseph, who is the Lord of Egypt, he's blown away by what he has just witnessed and heard from Judah. Joseph now sees in all of his dealings with his brothers abundant evidence that his brothers have truly changed. These are brothers that he realizes that he can now reveal himself to and know that they will have his back. These are brothers that he can invite to Egypt and provide for. These are brothers that he can have a future with. These are brothers who can stand tall as leaders of the tribes of Israel, the nation through whom God had promised to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Joseph's heart melts in this moment, and he cannot restrain himself from revealing himself to his brothers any longer. And so as we look at this chapter, we're going to observe eight developments in this amazing story of Joseph revealing himself to his family. And the first development is the revelation itself. Number one, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers as Joseph, whom his brothers sold into Egypt. Observe what happens beginning in verse one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, speaking of his servants and attendants. And he cried, literally, he cried out, have everyone go out from me. That is everyone of his servants and attendants. Everyone is to leave the room except his brothers. So the text says, so there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Judah has just described his father Jacob as being in such a vulnerable state that he leaves Joseph very concerned about his father's health. Is my father still alive? He asks. He's very concerned about his dad. But Joseph's brothers do not and cannot answer Joseph's question. They're too focused on the first part of what Joseph said when he told them that he is Joseph. Observe their reaction at the end of verse three. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Literally, the Hebrew reads, they were frightened at his face, disturbed at his face. Joseph was probably wearing some kind of royal Egyptian headdress that concealed some of his features. And he probably is taking that off when he says to his brothers, I am Joseph, giving his brothers their first look at his unadorned face. And they're left thunderstruck by what they see. By his face so much so that they are rendered speechless. Keep in mind that they're already in a state of terror right now about what's going to happen to their brother Benjamin and to all of them. And now on top of that terror, the man they are dealing with reveals himself as the brother whom they had sold into slavery 22 years prior. That's even more terrifying to them. Seeing them speechless like this and 
kind of falling back away from him, no doubt, Joseph speaks to his brothers. Look at verse 4. The text says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Well, there can be no denying now that this man is their brother. No one else would have known this little detail about them selling him into Egypt. Joseph's intent here, I am sure, is not to try to throw up their past sin in their face. He's simply identifying himself in a way that would prove persuasive to his brothers. They sold him into Egypt, which explains why they are now meeting him here in, of all places, Egypt. Nonetheless, Joseph mentioning their selling him into Egypt had to have alarmed his brothers and caused them to be stricken with grief and regret. They are no doubt feeling completely stripped naked and exposed. Their sin has right now just been spoken aloud for the first time in decades. And the man speaking those words about their sin is saying that he is Joseph, whom they had sold into Egypt. Well, Joseph already observed back in Genesis 43, that his brothers are torn up inside for what they had done to Joseph 22 years prior. And he realizes there's no need to pile grief on top of grief. These brothers need comfort. And this is what Joseph gives to them immediately, which leads us to the second development in this story of Joseph revealing himself to his family Number two, Joseph comforts his brothers with truths regarding God's gracious sovereignty. Listen to what Joseph says to his brothers in verse five. He says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. When speaking to someone who has never repented of their sin, you should speak to them the way that James speaks to sinning people in James chapter 4, verse 9, when he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Those are commands. But Joseph's brothers are already miserable and mourning and weeping. They're already grieved over their sin against Joseph, and they're now alarmed in Joseph's presence so Joseph comforts them and essentially says, stop being grieved and angry with yourselves. And why can he say this to them? Well, first, because they had repented. Secondly, because God sovereignly used their sin to bring about an amazingly good outcome. Listen to what Joseph says in verses six and seven. He says to his brothers, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance, a great escape, literally. Joseph is telling his brothers that God actually use the agency of their sin against Joseph to send Joseph down to Egypt. God did not cause these brothers to sin against Joseph, but he orchestrated things in such a way that their sin against Joseph only served to fulfill God's purpose of sending Joseph down to Egypt to preserve his family to keep them alive by a great deliverance, a deliverance that is very needful and perfectly timed right now, given the fact that there are still five more years of famine to go. It's remarkable, the timing of all of this. In fact, God's sovereign providence is so active in this situation that Joseph won't even give his brothers credit for sending him down to Egypt 
In verse 8, he says to his brothers, Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You may have sold me here, Joseph says, but you didn't send me here. God did that. And God has elevated me to be ruler in Egypt. God has done this. I have right now the influence of a father over the Pharaoh himself. And I've been entrusted by the Pharaoh to rule over all of the land of Egypt right now. Think about what it must have been like for Joseph's brothers to hear these words and realize the truth of what Joseph is saying to them. What must it have been like to be Joseph's brothers to do what they did 22 years ago against Joseph, selling him into slavery, walking in guilt for 22 years, wondering what manner of evil has befallen Joseph because of their crime against him. And now to learn right now that the worst thing that they ever did in their lives 22 years prior has actually been used by God to bring about a most amazingly good outcome that now redounds to their benefit and the benefit of nations. That's the grace that Joseph's brothers are having to grapple with right now. But there's little time to waste. Joseph right now is kind of antsy. He's anxious for his brothers to become messengers of this good news to their father who is frail and elderly. And this leads us to the third development in this story of Joseph revealing himself to his family. Let's word it this way. Joseph commissions his brothers to deliver the good news about him and his summons to their father. Observe what Joseph tells his brothers to do in verse 9. He's speaking to his brothers and he says, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You, Jacob, shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have there. I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished if you don't accept my invitation. The land of Goshen, it's hard to know exactly where it is, but virtually everyone you read will tell you that it was rich pasture land in the northeast part of the Nile Delta, which would be an ideal place for Jacob and his family in the years to come to live and to flourish. And Joseph is calling these brothers who had once sinned against him. He's just revealed himself to them, and now he's calling them to be messengers for him to their father. And he gives them the message that they are to deliver which includes the good news that God has made Joseph Lord over the land of Egypt, followed by the call to come to him, speaking to his dad, followed by the promise of great provision, followed by a warning of impoverishment if his father chooses not to heed his summons. Joseph is getting a little ahead of himself, though, because his brothers still are too stunned to pay any attention to his instructions. Joseph is telling them what to speak to their father, and his brothers are still unable to speak even to Joseph. And they can hardly believe it is Joseph who is even talking to them. Joseph sees his brothers struggling with this, so he speaks to them in verse 12, the text says, has Joseph saying, behold, he says to his brothers, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see. In other words, your eyes are not deceiving you as you look at me. 
that it is my mouth which is speaking to you, he says to his brothers. Joseph clearly is no longer speaking through an interpreter. He is speaking to them directly in their Hebrew tongue with his own mouth as another evidence that he is truly Joseph. He continues in verse 13 saying, Now you must tell my father of all my splendor, literally my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. Again, Joseph is clearly very concerned about his father's health and wants to see him in Egypt before he dies. So Joseph has given his brothers here a commission. But these brothers need more than a commission from Joseph. Their hearts are literally running riot at this moment. They have seen Joseph's tears. They've heard his talk. But they need his touch to waken them from their paralysis and panic. They need affection. And Joseph is going to give that to them lavishly in order to open the floodgates and loosen their tongues because they still haven't said a word yet. This brings us to the fourth development in this story. Number four, Joseph lavishes kisses, tears, and fellowship on all his brothers. Observe what Joseph does in verse 14. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Keep in mind that the reunion between Joseph and Benjamin is simpler than it would have been for Joseph and his other brothers. The text makes clear that Benjamin did not participate in the selling of Joseph into slavery. So Benjamin really has no fears in this situation. Of all the brothers, his reunion with Joseph seems to be the freest And Benjamin is the only brother who is said to weep on Joseph's neck. But Joseph, for his part, does not only lavish affection on Benjamin. Verse 15 tells us he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Finally, their mouths are open. Joseph wants his brothers to be messengers, and he's kind of hasty about it. He wants them to make haste to carry the news to their father and to get their father and bring him down to Egypt. But Joseph seems to know how important it is to take some time to kiss his brothers and to converse with them as brother with brothers. And he does this with each of his brothers, leaving not one of them out. When the text tells us that his brothers talked with him, don't think of that talk as like a little five-minute conversation that each brother had with Joseph. This is likely a conversing that takes hours and probably goes into the evening as they enjoy fellowship together and do a whole lot of catching up. Back in Genesis Chapter 37, verse 4, you might want to write that reference down. We were told that Joseph's brothers could not speak to Joseph on friendly terms before they ended up selling him into slavery. That's how things were, how toxic things were, even in the months, if not years, before they got rid of Joseph 22 years prior. And now here they are talking to him, no doubt on friendly terms terms, making the healing of the breach between them complete. This is actually the first friendly conversation that Joseph has enjoyed with his brothers in a very long time, dating back to even before they had sold him into Egypt. And boy, did they talk. We can imagine Arkant Hughes says it this way, all the guilt was gone. Joyous love enveloped all, 
and they talked and talked and talked about 20 years times 12, some 240 plus years of catching up. And I'm sure Joseph personally, repeatedly extended his invitation to each brother to bring their father and to come with their father and to come with their families and to live with him in Egypt. The truth is that Joseph has kind of gone out on a limb and made a huge offer to his brothers and his father, inviting them to come to Egypt and to live under his care. There's only one person in all of the land of Egypt who can overrule Joseph's offer to his brothers, and that one person who can overrule him is Pharaoh. Yet we see in the following verses that Pharaoh does absolutely nothing but affirm Joseph's invitation to his family, which brings us to the next development in this amazing story. Number five, Pharaoh reiterates Joseph's summons for the whole family to come and live in Egypt. Observe what happens in verse 16. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers. Now, here's the message Joseph is to carry to his brothers. Do this, load your beast and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. That's a message from Pharaoh that Joseph is now a messenger of or to be a messenger of to his brothers. Pharaoh so loves and so adores Joseph that he automatically shows kindness to Joseph's family members, having never met them, simply because of their connection to Joseph. Pharaoh would not be this generous, probably with anyone else, but he is this generous with Joseph's brothers and Joseph's father simply because they are related to Joseph, whom Pharaoh loves so much. Pharaoh continues in verse 19. This is the message Joseph is to convey to his brothers from the Pharaoh, which continues as this. Now you are ordered. Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh is not interested in any polite back and forth with Joseph's brothers. He doesn't want to invite them to Egypt and offer them these things, the wagons and stuff, and have them politely refuse and say, no, thank you, that's too much, but we appreciate it. And then forcing Pharaoh to say, no, I insist. He doesn't want to do any of that back and forth. He cuts through all of that and says, this is an order. Obey me. Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt that I provide you and bring your father and your wives and your children back here. That's a command from the Pharaoh. And he also tells them, don't even bother bringing all of your goods from Canaan with you. Don't worry about all the stuff that you're going to be leaving behind because you're going to be provided for wonderfully when you get here. The best of all the land of Egypt is yours. That's the message Joseph is to convey to his brothers from the Pharaoh. And Joseph, no doubt, passes along Pharaoh's instructions and the promises that Pharaoh has made to his brothers. And then Joseph adds his own provisions and instructions to what the Pharaoh has said. And this brings us to the sixth development in this story. Number six, Joseph richly supplies and counsels his brothers for their journey to Canaan and back. He richly supplies and counsels his brothers for their journey to Canaan and back. Look at what is said in verse 24. Then the sons of Israel did so 
And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Why would Joseph give changes of clothing to his brothers other than simply to be generous? Well, in part, he gives his brothers new clothes because in the last chapter, they tore their clothes, remember? In dismay, when the silver cup was discovered in the mouth of Benjamin's sack of grain, Joseph does not want them traveling home in torn clothes, which would alarm their father when they're approaching the house at the end of their journey. Imagine Jacob seeing them all with torn clothes and all that he would assume from that. Torn clothes would be most inappropriate for brothers who have such good news to share. Joseph is also showing his brothers tremendous grace in giving them these new clothes, and this couldn't have been lost on them. 22 years prior, these brothers tore Joseph's cloak from off of his body, and yet here is Joseph graciously giving them Clothes to put on their bodies. What grace. We learn in verse 22 that Joseph treats Benjamin differently than he does his other brothers. And he gives them to Benjamin five changes of clothing and 300 pieces of silver, which evidently he didn't give to his other brothers. And there are actually commentators who criticize Joseph for giving Benjamin extra changes of clothing and 300 pieces of silver because it might be provocative to his brothers. But remember that Benjamin is Joseph's only full-blooded brother. So it makes sense that Joseph would do this. And it's also almost certainly uh, this is Joseph's way of making amends to Benjamin for having the silver cup put in his sack. He kind of owes Benjamin for what he had done to Benjamin, putting a silver cup in his sack, 300 pieces of silver and five new suits. That ought to make up for that. I know that would help me. If you ever wrong me and you want (laughs) to make amends, you are welcome 300 pieces of silver would be about right. (laughs) As for his father, observe what Joseph does for his father in verse 23. The text says to his father, he sent as follows 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So Joseph's thinking about the journey back already. He's not just providing for them to get home, but providing for Jacob to be amply supplied on his trip from Canaan to Egypt to be with Joseph. Joseph has delivered a command to his father, and that command is come. And Joseph backs up his command with all the provision that Jacob is going to need to obey Joseph's summons. And with that, Joseph sends his brothers off with a parting word of counsel. Look at verse 24. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. Interesting instruction there. The Hebrew word translated quarrel is often associated with fear and anguish in the Old Testament. Joseph could be saying, do not argue or quarrel on the journey, but he also could be saying, do not become fearful on the journey. And I think actually both ideas are here in the word. Joseph knows that his brother's minds are going to start playing tricks on them the farther that they get away from Egypt. When the thrill of the reunion is dying down, When the memory of this reunion begins to fade, these brothers might start thinking and 
asking themselves, does Joseph really want us to move to Egypt and live with him so that he can provide for us? Or was he just being nice? You ever been invited by someone to their house or whatever, and you're not sure they really mean it? Are they just being nice? Or do they really want me to accept this invitation? And even if Joseph did want us to come to Egypt when he extended the invitation, has he changed his mind by now as he's been thinking about things more? He seemed to forgive us when we were there, but has he changed his mind about having forgiven us? And if he hasn't yet changed his mind about forgiving us, what if he does change his mind about forgiving us in some future day? And if these brothers start having these kinds of doubts, they might find themselves wondering if they really want to move to Egypt after all and be close to Joseph and be vulnerable to what Joseph might do to them if he ever decided to change his mind about forgiving them. Once these fears start setting in to the minds of Joseph's brothers, Joseph knows that these brothers might start replaying their sin from 22 years prior. They might even start accusing one another. Reuben might say to his brothers once again, like he said before, I told you guys not to sin against your brother and look what you turned around and did. So Joseph encourages them here. He counsels them not to be anxious, not to be fearful, not to quarrel with one another on their journey home to Canaan and then back from Canaan to Egypt. Just obey me, Joseph says. Tell my father to come down here and you come with him, with your families. Let me provide for you. Do not fear and do not doubt for one second that I have forgiven you and that my invitation to you is fully sincere and will never be revoked. Joseph's brothers give heed to Joseph's instructions. They journey home to Canaan and they meet up with their dad, which brings us to the next development in this story. And this particular point is going to be an extremely quick one because it blends into the next one. Joseph's brothers tell their father the good news about Joseph and his summons. Observe what Joseph's brothers do in verse 25. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. I can only imagine how excited these brothers were to tell their father the good news that they had to tell him. But they would also realize that actually there's no way we're going to be able to tell our father the good news of everything that has happened without having to also tell our father what we did to Joseph 22 years prior. They would have realized that and been thinking about that. Nonetheless, as they approached their father's house, Jacob would have heard them coming and then would have come out and seen them approaching. And he would have noticed how they all seemed to be dressed differently. He would have noticed the wagons and the donkeys and all of the provision. He would have noticed that Simeon is with them and he would have been happy about that. He would have noticed that Benjamin is with them and he would have been ecstatic about that. He would have noticed that they have plenty of grain on their donkeys to last for a very long time. And Jacob, no doubt, would have seen all of this and immediately started thanking God for all of these things, little realizing that he's about to discover that God has done exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that Jacob could have asked or thought. Observe what Joseph's brothers do. In verse 26, as soon as they could speak to their dad, verse 26, they told him saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. That is staggering news. We don't know which brother said these words first, but eventually if we heed the grammar here, the other brothers chimed in and they were all saying the same thing. They said 
Joseph is alive, each one of them would have said to their father as he looked from son to son for confirmation that he was hearing right. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt, they said to their father. Well, Jacob's response is not a simple one. Uh, Keep in mind that he's 130 years old right now. And you got to give the man a break for having a little trouble processing this news. This brings us to the final development in this epic story. Number eight, a stunned Jacob embraces the good news and resolves to go to Joseph. That's Jacob's ultimate response, but it wasn't his initial response. Observe his initial response in verse 26. The text says, but he was stunned for he did not believe them. Literally, the Hebrew reads, and his heart stopped. The New King James Version says, Jacob's heart stood still. And part of what that also includes, the word for heart in the Hebrew doesn't just speak of what we think of when we think of heart, but sometimes it's even translated as mind. His mind froze is part of the idea here. Like he goes into shock. And why did he go into shock like this? The text says, for he did not believe them. And the idea is that he could not believe them. He had no category in his head with which to even begin to fit this news. Jacob has in his house a coat of many colors with blood on it that was handed to him by his sons 22 years ago. And for 22 years, Jacob viewed that as evidence that Joseph was torn to pieces by a wild animal. How do you go from believing that for 22 years to believing that your son is actually not torn to pieces, but he's actually alive and he is the ruler in the land of Egypt. That's a lot for a 130-year-old brain to process. And Jacob's going to need some straight talk from his sons to comprehend this. So observe what his sons do to bring him to a place of believing their announcement. Verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Don't skip over the first part of verse 27. For these brothers to tell their father all the words of Joseph that had been spoken to them, they had to confess to their father the sin that they committed 22 years prior, right? Do you see that? According to the text, these brothers didn't just tell their dad some of the words of Joseph, but all the words of Joseph. Every single word leaving nothing out. This means that they would have told their dad how Joseph had said to them, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. So they would have told their dad how they sold Joseph into slavery 22 years prior. But then they would tell their dad how Joseph had said, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. So this conversation that they are right now having with their dad embodies a wonderful moment of confession for these brothers as the guilty burden of 22 years of secrecy comes off their shoulders. They confess their sin to their father while at the same time telling him the words of Joseph, how Joseph spoke to them, comfort even for what they had done. 
and how God amazingly used the evil that they had done against Joseph to bring about a most wonderful outcome. Dad, they would say, Joseph is alive and he's a ruler in the land of Egypt and he's summoning you and all of us to come and live with him and be provided for by him. And once they're done telling their father everything, the text says the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Jacob is now believing the news that Joseph is alive. He awakens from his swoon and his spirit revives. And 22 years of sorrow turn into mind-numbing joy. We're told in Proverbs chapter 15 that good news puts fat on the bones. And Jacob is experiencing the reality of that here in ways that I think we can only begin to imagine. Jacob would have been absolutely, utterly overwhelmed by the goodness of God who has shown himself to be more true to his promises to Jacob than Jacob could have fathomed, blessing Jacob far beyond what Jacob could have ever imagined in his wildest dreams. You know, we often say that God is good, right? But he's so much more than good. Amen. He's so good that he can make your heart stop beating for joy. That's how good he is. He can blow your mind. That's how good he is. That's what he's doing for Jacob here. God has made many promises, amazing promises to Jacob over the years, but I'm sure right now that Jacob would say that God's not just fulfilling promises, he's over-delivered on his promises. And Jacob is no doubt stunned by the staggering grace of it all. In fact, observe how Jacob responds in verse 28, the final verse of this chapter. The text says, then Israel. Remember that Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob when he promised to bless him and make of him a mighty people. And this is the perfect time to call him Israel. Then Israel said, it is enough. It is enough. When he says it is enough, he's saying to his sons, enough said, I'm convinced. He's telling his sons that he needs no more argument or proof. He embraces the good news that his son Joseph is alive and he doesn't just embrace it. He speaks the words out loud. Saying, my son Joseph is still alive. Imagine how those words felt on his tongue. And Jacob accepts the extravagant invitation to come to Egypt and be with his son, Joseph. He says, I will go and see him before I die. In the next chapter, Jacob and his sons are going to load up and they're going to make the journey to Egypt and Jacob will see Joseph for the first time in 22 long years. And it will be an amazing reunion between Joseph and his dad. And Joseph, we're going to see, will cry on his father's neck for a very long time when he sees him. But we'll study that on another Sunday because we have to stop here for today. The story in Genesis 45 is so epic for so many reasons. This whole story is such an amazing demonstration of God's grace upon a broken family, which should give us hope for our broken family situations and the brokenness in our own lives. If there ever was a family that needed a divine intervention, it was this one. And never has there been a divine intervention in a family like this one. Only an event of this magnitude could have taken the broken and fractured family of Jacob and full of envy and strife and sin and united them in a way that the foundation of a nation is formed. Only an intervention like this could serve as the glue that 
is going to hold the 12 tribes of Israel together for many centuries to come. And guys, as we read and study Genesis 45 and see all the good that is in this chapter, let us not forget the hinge on which these events turn or the catalyst of these events, the catalyst for this outpouring from Joseph upon his brothers was the substitutionary offer of Judah to serve as a slave in Benjamin's place that we saw at the end of the last chapter. As one writer says, when Joseph heard the heroic self-sacrifice of Judah and realized all the affection of that proposal, a proposal for which he, Joseph, was totally unprepared. He was completely unmanned. He felt himself forced to bring this painful trial to an end and a whole lot of wonderful, beautiful, lavish good followed immediately in the chapter that we've just studied today. And we'll continue into the coming chapters. It was Judah who caused the dam to break. It was Judah who opened the floodgates of generosity and grace and love that are seen in Genesis 45. And he opened those floodgates with his sacrificial offer of himself as a vicarious substitute for his brother Benjamin. We often think of Joseph as a type of Christ and for good reason, but let's not forget about Judah as we study these accounts This story is as much about the rise of Judah as a leader in his family as it is about the grace of Joseph. It's no wonder that kings of Israel will descend from Judah and that the Messiah himself will descend from Judah, a Messiah who will offer himself as a sacrifice, dying in the place of sinners. Speaking of which, there's an amazing, deep similarity between this story in Genesis 45 and the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. I don't know if any of you were picking this up as we were going along, but there's a lot of foreshadowings in this chapter that we uh, see pointed to, pointing to Christ's death and resurrection. Just to name a few, Jesus' disciples had all abandoned Jesus on the night Jesus was taken away to be crucified, just as Joseph's brothers abandoned Joseph to be carried off to Egypt. Jesus' disciples were terrified when they first saw Jesus alive after his resurrection, just as Joseph's brothers were terrified when they saw Joseph alive after he had been sold into Egypt. Joseph gives his brothers a great commission to go to Canaan and tell the news that he is alive and ruling, to give that news to his father and their households. And likewise, Jesus gives a great commission to his disciples too, that they and that we as his disciples would declare to all the world the truth that Jesus is alive and that he is ruling over heaven and earth, not just Egypt and then invite people to come and live under his amazing, bountiful provision. Before Joseph sends his brothers off on their mission to tell the good news to their father and to their families, he first takes some time to love on them. He hugs and kisses and converses with them. And Jesus did the same thing for the 11 disciples after his resurrection. Jesus appears to his disciples repeatedly. He allows them to come near to him and he draws near to them. He speaks to them and invites them to touch him and to look upon him closely. In John 20, he breathes on them. He does everything necessary to convince them that, yes, this is truly me. And I've truly been raised and I am alive and I love you before he unleashes them upon the world to declare the good news that he is alive, that he is ruling over heaven and earth and invites all people everywhere to come to him and to live under his rule. 
Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, which was a horrible crime. Yet God used that crime, that event, to bring Joseph to power in Egypt so that he could save his family with a great escape, a great deliverance. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus was crucified by wicked hands. Yet this awful act of crucifying Christ ends up being used of God to bring about the greatest good in the history of the world. Through his death, God gives a great escape, a great salvation to sinners like you and me. God raised Jesus from the dead and elevated him to be Lord of heaven and earth. And in Acts 2, we learn that some of the very people who had crucified Christ were the recipients of the salvation that was accomplished through the very crucifixion of Christ that they had participated in. What must it have been like for those people on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 to hear that in crucifying Christ, they merely participated in something that God had foreordained, and now they can be the recipients of a salvation that comes to sinners like them through the very death that they perpetrated on Jesus at the cross. What staggering grace is this? Joseph's brothers will be forever changed by the staggering developments in our chapter today. And Jesus' disciples and the Jerusalem Christians were forever changed and united by the resurrection of Jesus after his death and by the grace that he lavished on them. And you and I should be forever changed as well. God is good. Amen. And he is worthy of our worship. And anyone who comes to him and experiences that moment of reckoning where they're saying, God, you have found out the iniquity, my my iniquity, and that they see that Christ has died for them and shed his blood so that they can have atonement. People who receive his grace on the other side of that reckoning experience the lavish goodness of God that is extravagant and that leaves them with 10,000 reasons to bless his holy name and so many more beyond that. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. And a chapter like this today takes our understanding of that word good and it just blows it up. You are staggeringly good. Eye has not seen nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You are a God who has done exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that Jacob and his brothers could have asked or thought. And you have done exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could have ever asked or thought. As amazing and crazy as this story is in Genesis 45 and the surrounding chapters, This is just a tiny, small foreshadowing of the more amazing story of God coming to earth in the form of a man and dying on a cross, shedding his blood so that sinners can have salvation. And if there's anyone in this room this morning, Lord, who has never bowed their knee to you and surrendered to your sweet sovereignty Touch their hearts and give them life. And may they see you in all of your splendor and glory, so much so that it would be an intolerable suffering to them to continue one more minute apart from you because you are that good. May the sight of your goodness in this chapter and throughout the rest of Scripture ruin us forever from ever falling prey to anything else that would present itself as good. 
And may our hearts belong to you only. And we so savor your grace that we are just left scratching our heads and pondering with amazement this good God, this lavish grace that has been poured out upon us through Christ. And thankful for events like we see in Genesis 45 and the surrounding chapters that are all part of the narrative that leads to the coming of the Messiah, the preserving of his lineage, and then the coming of the Messiah so that we can have this salvation that we must have if we are going to be made right with you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. Receive these funds. Do much with all that is given in this offering for your glory and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said,